0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Leverage & Beverage. I'm your host, Greg Sobosinski. And here, again, we have a show about business and some of the best beverages on the planet, where we hear stories and talk about the strategy and the process of building, growing, and actualizing an idea. Today, we have in the studio, uh, we have Terry Slater. Terry, how are you doing?
1: Doing well, Greg. How are you?
0: (laughs) Very good. Um, So let's start off. You have a very interesting story. I've heard some of your background before um and again it was just a story i really gravitated towards and it was kind of the reason why i wanted to bring you on but um tell people about your business the name of the business and what sector you're in and kind of how you got started in that business
1: okay sure so the name of the business is empire interpreting service and basically it's a language to language we're a language service provider on several different fronts we provide on-site interpreting in several different languages. Um, we provide a telephonic platform where people call in for spoken language interpreting in virtually any language where they can be connected within seconds. Um, and then we provide translation services. So it can be written paper um, or uh, digital, like, for example, a website.
0: Gotcha. So did you start doing this right out the gate? Or how did you <laughs> get into this? I feel like I've never met and interpreter, translator, et cetera. Um, so maybe take us through what your early career looked like and if that had any formative shape on this or what that process really looked like.
1: Okay. So it, actually my, my future as an interpreter started when my oldest son was born. He had a conductive hearing loss which was actually corrected when he was about five years old, hmm. but it gave me a glimpse into a hearing loss. And especially in young people, you think of older people, our grandparents start to lose their hearing, right. But here was an infant that was growing into a toddler um, that was going into a little kid that was struggling with a hearing loss. Uh, you know, he, his was corrected. Um, but that was my first glimpse. And then fast forward into my, uh, my career I would say was really survival it was job after, <laughs> job after job after job. And I ended in, um, in a position as a business manager. So I was basically managing an office and working in business management of a car dealership. And I had to um, take time off because of an illness. And during that time, uh, ironically a deaf pastor had come to our church and presented the need for people learning sign language in order mm-hmm. to communicate with more people and bring people into the church and he offered a year class free in sign wow. language so i took that and decided that this was something i fell in love with the deaf community and american sign language so during my uh, treatments to get through an illness um i fast tracked my a degree and in interpreting my undergrad, because I was very concerned that I didn't have an undergrad degree. And I had two little boys at that time. Um, and I was very concerned and a, a little bit on, the, I wouldn't say hysterical side, but definitely on the dramatic side of what will happen if sure. I don't make it through this illness and my boys um, remember their mother as someone that wasn't well-educated and didn't at least, at least have an undergrad. I know it sounds silly now, but um, so I left the business management side of me behind and became a freelance interpreter. So after I made it through the illness and I was told you're not going to die, so go live your life, I had to decide what to do. So this is what I did for about 10 years. Um, what I really saw lacking in the industry of language service providing was the vetting hmm. of interpreters and really the professional and ironically ethical side of um what was happening in the industry so after about 10 years i decided to start my own agency and it started as just sign language and six of my colleagues that i respected and i knew were talented and had the um, certifications and background and formal training and i started using them and they worked for me and that's where it all started almost 20 years ago
0: so it sounds like you had a, a couple nudges along the way, both as far as your son and then the, the priest at your church. It's like, wow, this is really kind of shaping up to, I should be involved in this field in some way or another. Right. Um, so it sounds like you did some bouncing around for a while. What was that process like from, I guess, both an emotional perspective as well as just a transition perspective? I mean, today it seems like people are bouncing around jobs a lot. But it seems like, you know, even 10 years ago, that wasn't that common. People were more in their role. They kind of stayed there for longer periods of time. So what was that like internally for you?
1: I think for me, because I'm very unusual, I think, in the sense that I was on my own at 15. And Mm -hmm. so I, you know, when you find yourself in that situation, you're in survival mode. So a lot of my work was just, you know, working as a waitress or working as a receptionist or cleaning hotel rooms. What could I do to survive? And the one thing I always knew is that I needed to have a formal education. So through all this, I was always looking for educational opportunities. Um, I ended up in a car dealership that had a program through um, Porsche at the time many years ago, where you could go through almost like... um, mini business management um, program. So I went through that, which really fell in love with the management part of business. And I worked in virtually every part of the dealership that I could find from the service department to parts to sales. And so that was something that that really got my juices flowing and I, I, and I really loved, but it was very different when I finished my degree and interpreting, all of a sudden I was faced with the opportunity that I didn't have to sur- go from survival to survival, that I could actually look at my career and mm-hmm. what was that going to look like for me. Um, freelance interpreting, you're very much independent, I you know, contract, you're subcontracting through different places, and but it is your own business. So it kind of still, you know, utilize a lot of that, but it is a different mindset for sure.
0: Sure, the piece I want to go into real briefly is the, the survival mode aspect. I'm sure a lot of people listening, you know, there's something they want to do, but they kind of find themselves in this place where, you know, they're either bouncing around just trying to make ends meet first for one reason or another. Um, and what, what happens then is it makes it very hard to think strategically about the future. You're just trying to make sure the bases get covered in, in the here and now. Um, so what would you say to those people who are like, you know, having gone through it? There is a light at the end of the tunnel. How do you how do you navigate the, those waters?
1: That's a great question. I I think that what you have to do is look for the opportunities. If you're a waitress, you need to look for when are those opportunities and present yourself to management mm. um, of taking over a shift. There's always shift leaders. There's always a way that you can prove yourself and move into that position. So now you're learning leadership skills. Um, it's not just about a higher rate of pay, which you would have, but I remember working for the car dealership specifically, I was hired as just a receptionist that took people's money. And then I had an opportunity to work with the bookkeeper who then became ill and had to be out for a while. I presented to the owner of the dealership um, an idea to work with our accountant for that I had met. And it was a cheaper alternative for him to train me to do the bookkeeper's job than it was to go hire another (laughs) bookkeeper. So he bought in his CPA and he sat next to me and he taught me how to do the financials. So I think looking for those opportunities to learn and looking for those opportunities to push yourself into those roles, um, whatever they might be, they're always there regardless, even in housekeeping, there's a hat of housekeeping, Right. right? There's always something that you can be pushing for.
0: Yeah, the, the part about you learning the bookkeeper's job, you can see where someone could fall in. And go, Whoa, I've never done that before. They kind of shy away from it. But it's one of those situations where even if you don't know completely how to do it, you kind of have to accept it, run with what you know, and kind of plug and play as, as you go. Because that's really in, in those situations sometimes, it's the only way to advance or level up is, okay, I'm not quite at the point that they're asking for in the, in this role. And I see it all the time with people applying to jobs. Oh, I don't hit those requirements. I haven't been 10 years in, in this job. I don't have X amount of experience in this field or our tangential field. So I'm not going to apply. But I mean, more or less, I would encourage those people to apply anyway. And typically, if you're savvy enough, you you can make that work. So I think that's a very important point that I wanted to just point out for a second, because I think sometimes people underestimate their own abilities or, or their, at least their ability to take on that, that next challenge that might be there, but, um, hasn't fully been clarified yet, if you will.
1: Exactly. And I, you know, I used to live by my internal motto of fake it to make it. <laughs> and honestly, I was just a kid. I was a 15 year old kid with not even a high school education. It's hard. It's hard. It's so hard. I, you know, there's, you you have to do it. Survival is a great motivator. My dad used to say, "Hunger is a great motivator," <laughs> yeah. and I was I was in all those those positions, but I didn't know anything about accounting and bookkeeping. It was mm. terrifying to me to think I was going to be in that role. But you know, it, 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 people do it. You know, people. Where do you learn the most? Do you learn the most in a college classroom, or do you learn the most when you're on the job?
0: Right. I, I'm sure that and I'm sure that was looking back. Being that having to bounce from place to place or be in that survival mode was definitely helpful in later years because things that might have been a catastrophe were okay. I've I've been here before. You know what I mean. I can I can weather the storm. I can, I can make this work. I
1: think it's really helped me as a business owner. And when I'm hiring people and I look at people, um, you know, skills will come if people have the formal education as an interpreter or translator. They have those skills, uh, work ethic and professionalism are something that's ingrained Mm. and I, I look for that first and foremost because I know that they're going to be in the field and their skills are going to be built upon and they're going to get that experience that they need to become a better and better interpreter or translator but I can't teach someone unless they have it in their gut that work ethic and that professionalism that that the people, that's what I look for that people bring to our company.
0: That's good to know. So and I'm sure you've refined your hiring practices over the years and it's kind of boiled down to, to this right here is who can yes. talk to people who can be relational. Um, and I think sometimes people really overestimate what they have to do for a job. I mean, there's, I had a conversation with someone the other day about people who are just nice people and working with them can be a pleasure. even if they're not a, like be the, the best in their field, you'll be like, I'm willing to work with you because I like you. <laughs> and other times you meet people who might um, rub you the wrong way or just kind of, um, I don't know, not pleasant people to be around. And it's like, yeah, you might be really good at what you do, but uh, quite frankly, I'd rather not, not work with you. You know what I mean?
1: <laughs> it's true. I mean, we have a, an, on our roster in each different language, we have our top interpreters that are go-tos and those go-tos are not always the most skilled interpreters, mm. but they're the ones that are going to show up. They're the ones gotcha. that are going to, you know, we're going to get this great feedback from our customers. Those those are the people that you do go to. Like you said, it's not always the people that have the most. Absolutely.
0: For your time at Porsche, you said that there was a, these benefits that they had, basically the benefit of either moving into a management role or. Um, expand upon that a little bit because there's things that a lot of, that was a, a class, correct? In, in management. Right. And I think sometimes employers provide things like this, but people don't know they're available necessarily. So how did you come across that or stumble upon that? Cause that ultimately was a, a, a major pivotal turning point in, in the trajectory of your, of your career. So what could, what would you say about, you know, seeking those opportunities,
1: that I mean, it was actually the owner of the car dealership that came to me one day when I was sitting next to the CPA, learning how to do these books for this poor lady who had become so ill. She wasn't going to come back. Um, again, it's it's less expensive for the owner of a business to train somebody that's already working for them to go out than to go out and find someone else. He found through some kind of communication with Porsche that they had this program and it was free to, to me and to the owner of the car dealership to have me attended. It was a year. It was, uh, I was a single mom at the time. It was a lot of time hmm. um, outside of work. I wasn't getting paid for it, but I knew that there was value there. I would say to people, you know, constantly be going to management, look at my, what might not, what might be available. I think that um, people just, they don't ask. Mm-hmm. And often it is that you can go to HR, you can find out, is there tuition reimbursement? Is there somebody higher up that you can just shadow and learn from or have them mentor you? And mentoring is a, is a very um, important part of the interpreting field.
0: Sure. I remember, that reminds me of a quote my, my dad used to tell me when I was younger and he would say, 90% of life is, is just showing up. <laughs> you know, so it's so like- true. So it's like you have those times where there's an opportunity or, and sometimes just, just being there and just kind of going through the motions, you'll, you'll eventually hit an opportunity and then it's, then your responsibility is to be, okay, I'm going to grab this by the reins and ride it where I can. But the, the fact that sometimes people, oh, I don't know if I, I don't know if I have the time, but inevitably all those times in my past, when I showed up and been there, oh, I meet somebody, oh, I meet somebody and this leads to a business relationship, oh, I meet somebody, leads to a business relationship, leads to another relationship. You know what I mean?
1: I do. So great example of that. I hired um, a young woman right out of college and she was working as an assistant for um, my business manager. And we were just doing sign language interpreting at that time. And we were getting calls for, do you have a Spanish interpreter? Do you have, you know, I need a French interpreter. So I recruited a few Spanish interpreters. And um, one day she walked in my office and said, I know that it's in your heart to really expand and have a spoken language element to this business. Would you let me take that and run with it? Mm. So that was about 15 years ago. She is now my director of spoken languages and has you know, hundreds of interpreters that work under her. And it's, it's about forty-five percent of my business now. Wow! Because she had the courage to walk in my office and say, "Let me take this and run with it." And I giving giving someone an employee the autonomy to do that. What was the worst thing that was going to happen was that she would fail. But <laughs> she worked her butt up and still does to this day. It's a very important part of the company. So. And that's, that's a good example of just putting yourself out there.
0: Do you think that's hard for business owners? I think some, not all, I'm not speaking in a blanket statement here, but I think some business owners, you know, like to have control over the situation. Some other ones are more like, okay, have the reins on this and take it where, where you will. Um, was that difficult for you initially? Or were you like, basically there's no downside here.
1: I didn't see a downside. Um, I don't have an MBA, so I'm not Maybe it was a foolish thing for me to do. I don't know as a business owner, but I did learn very quickly that other people, especially young people in the field, they have they have different knowledge, different backgrounds, different ideas, and the courage to push things forward in a way that I might not. Hmm. Um, and that I had to really respect that in order to grow the business.
0: Yeah, I, I think to really be a successful business owner like yourself, you kind of have to give some of that power over. Because again, it's like you can you can only do so much and you can't, in order to grow, you really have to replicate yourself, find other good people who can take on certain tasks, who can take on certain segments of that business and run with it. And ultimately it benefits everybody. It benefits them. They feel valued as part of the organization for taking up the reins on that particular part. It benefits you as the business owner. Um, So how let's talk about the scaling side of the business for a second, because it seems like unlike a software business where you can have very few people in the back office and the software kind of just does its thing and you kind of maintain it for interpreters, you have to have people power there. Like you have to have people who are physically in the room or, or virtually whatever, however you do it, but there has to be somebody, an actual person linked to that. How Mm -hmm. has scaling been for you and in, in, in your business?
1: So as far as staffing, is that what you mean? As far as
0: sure. And as far as like, Oh, we have a ton more jobs coming in and we need to really fill these out. Um, I'm sure that at a certain point that was like, we have to hire some people to really do this.
1: Right. Um, It's very different on the sign language side and on the spoken language side. My director of spoken languages spent a lot of time online, recruiting people through LinkedIn, um, A lot of time uh, using our social media to get people in, going to the professional organization, certifying agencies, and so on to bring her people in. On the sign language side, it was actually uh, easier because I was in that field for 10 years. I was a freelancer. I knew those people. Um, I went to a lot of college fairs and recruited people today, we don't have to do that. People come to us, they get resumes every day. So um, as far as scaling the business to bring those people in there, I think two pivotal things that happened to us. The first thing is that I hired someone within six months of opening the business. I joined a lot, every business group that I could find And I'll never forget a woman standing up and saying, you can either create a nice job for yourself, or you can create a business. If you want to create a business, you have to start hiring. And I did. And that woman is now my CFO. Wow. So these people have been with me forever. Um, and she really helped me build and form the business. Um, she was smart enough to come to me a year into the business because I was still out interpreting and said, said to me one day, um, are you an interpreter or are you a business owner? Because I can't do this all. We're growing too fast. And I had to make that hard choice of what was I. Hmm. So I decided to, to be a business owner and I'm not an interpreter anymore. I mean, I have my certifications and I could interpret, but I don't think you'd want me because I haven't interpreted in so many years. Right. You know, you need to be in it. Um,
0: was that uh, difficult for you?
1: That was really hard.
0: I can imagine. I, I, I stepped away from, uh, I played basketball my entire life and in college. I get in like my uh, third year, I stepped away just to kind of do other things. Wasn't quite where I, I thought it should be. And it was tough doing something for 15, 20, 30 years, and then stepping away from it. I mean, cause that's like part of your identity at this point is I'm, you know, Terry Slater and I'm an interpreter and now that's still there, but it's almost a secondary role to your primary as, as a business owner.
1: Yeah, I think, I think a lot of my background played into that decision. Um, it, it was tough. Survival was really tough for me for a long time. And I knew that there was a ceiling on what I could make as a freelance interpreter. I knew that I didn't feel there was any ceiling on what I could do as a business owner. And I felt very responsible to my family um, and to the people that work for me to keep growing the business. I also know that as a sign language interpreter, because of the physicality and the repetitive motion injuries and things that can happen that I've seen, unfortunately, very young interpreters have their careers cut short. I knew that I wasn't going to be able to interpret sign language the rest of my life.
0: I've never, I think it's one of those things people don't even think about. They don't think about, I mean, we know you're using your arms and your hands constantly, but as far as that having a you know, muscle strains and things of that. I've never really thought about that before.
1: Um, I have a very dear friend who we started interpreting about the same time. She's, she works for me still on a limited basis, but she's had many surgeries for repetitive motion um, injuries from her back to her neck to her ulnar wow. nerve. And, and it does happen. It's overuse. It's one of the reasons why I am really really tough with my customers on having teams for sign language assignments, anything over an hour and anything virtual, because virtual is a whole nother component. It has a team so that the interpreters can work in tangent and relief each other every 20 minutes. Mm
0: -hmm. The part that you mentioned about at a certain point, you reached a a critical mass where you didn't really have to go find people to hire. They kind of came to you. I think that's huge for small businesses because especially today, in today's world, it seems like hiring can be an issue. So it's very nice to get to a point where you know we have enough people coming to us, we don't even have to worry about even marketing as far as hiring is concerned. Um, if you could try to categorize that, when did that occur? Like, was there anything like a, a critical mass, either as, as far as size, as far as things that you did for marketing that, that really turned that that paradigm on its head where, okay, we went from having to actively seek people to now where people are coming to us and we have to kind of be more, um, sift through the applications to see who we want to hire.
1: So for spoken language, we still have to reach out to people because the language Languages that we need are constantly changing Hmm. on the sign language side, which is what we were known for primarily the first few years. We started out with a reputation of uh, almost, you know, it's, it's impossible to be on the roster and working for empire interpreting service. She sets her standards so high. Nobody else makes me prove that I have a bachelor's degree, nobody else does background checks and drug testing and we do criminal and sex offender registry checks. Those were things that really bothered me about the profession in general, that I could be working as a freelancer and in a school with a young child by myself, no one had ever background checked me or, or you know, knew if I was a sex offender and then I would be working. So for example, in a courtroom one time, with someone who came in totally inappropriately dressed, that didn't have certification, that didn't have the skills they needed, and there, there just wasn't any oversight. So when I started the business, I decided that, the, that there was a very strict criteria for the people that were working for me. Now, that meant that I had to pay them more. And a, a lot of what happens in the field is that subcontractors are told, this is what I will pay you an hour we don't do that. And legally you really shouldn't because they're subcontractors in business for themselves. They, they should be setting their own rates. What I said is here, are the, all the hoops you have to jump through. And here's the vetting process. What are your rates? Hmm. So people realized they had the latitude to set their own rates. Now, of course they have to be reasonable or <laughs> I wouldn't be able to use them, but the word started to get out that, you know, Terry Slater is a real hard ass about getting you in the the door. (laughs) But once you're in the door, not only are you in the door and have a reputation that you are this excellent interpreter, but you have the support. I was paying my interpreters and still do regularly on the first and the 15th of every month. That doesn't happen. And that didn't happen with other agencies. Sometimes I'd wait months to get paid. Mm. Um, We have support staff 24 seven. So if they're on on a job on a Saturday night at eight o'clock and something happens and they need the support, they can call one of the staff and get support. They have teams and jobs where they're putting themselves in danger for repetitive motion injury, and they get the information they need from where to park to prep materials. So the people started to recognize that and it drew them to us.
0: Very cool. The The certification part, um, and we had talked about this previously, but it seems like it is something that does get glanced over sometimes. Um, maybe you could speak to some stories that you've come across over the years where people either weren't properly vetted because the whole the whole industry is about communication it's having meaning relayed to meaning in a different language and if that's not conveyed properly then then it's not conveyed properly so how often do you see that and then maybe some examples of some egregious situations that you've come across
1: Well, I think the tipping point for me starting the business was the um, example that I told you about walking into a courtroom and I was there for a hearing. I didn't know who my team was going to be. I was in a business suit with my portfolio because we often get bodied in court and my team showed up and what looked like she was going to go wash her car on a Sunday afternoon. Um, The judge thought that she was the defendant. (laughs) Oh, man and not my team, I would not allow her into the well of the court because of her attire. He ran his courtroom military style, which many judges do. So I ended up doing that hearing solo. Uh, It was an embarrassment to me as someone in the field and certainly was an embarrassment to the deaf individual that had to appear that day. So um, that that was literally what tipped me into starting my own business. But, you know, we've we've all seen the quote unquote sign language interpreter that stood next to our president, Obama, who was they found out later was uh, we all knew he wasn't an interpreter because he was just flapping his hands around, (laughs) but found out later he was a criminal and he had actually was involved in a mass murder. It was it should have been a horrible embarrassment to the government. Um, of of our country and the country where the president um, was speaking. He was feet away from heads of state from all over the world. No one vetted him.
0: How does that happen? How how does that? I'd
1: love to know how that happened. It's unbelievable. Um, I interpreted for a lot of famous people over the years of freelancing. I remember interpreting for Hillary Clinton and she was keynote at a commencement And Secret Service did background checks. I remember they took my umbrella away from me on a day when it was pouring. And I thought, did they think I'm gonna hit her over the head with my umbrella? (laughs) (laughs) But they were very careful about who stood next to her, Hmm. um, which they rightfully should have been. Right. You know how this happened, but it but it does happen. And during COVID, unfortunately, I saw a lot of televised sign language interpreters standing next to officials that were talking about our pandemic. And most, many of them were excellent skilled interpreters, but some of them were not. And sometimes you'll see that when there's a tornado coming, or sometimes you'll see that when there's a mass murder that happens, um, it's embarrassing. It's, it's, it's very difficult for the customers because if you're a customer, how do you know, hmm. unless you, you know, the agency, right, right. And you and don't they, know if these people are, are vetted.
0: Is that, is that stressful? as an interpreter, is, you know, even the job of interpreting, you mentioned that for long form jobs, you will have several people kind of jump in and out, mm-hmm. but is that something that is inherently stressful of trying to make sure that this meaning is as exact as possible? Does that, and that, does that stress kind of decline the more you do it? I'm guessing it does to some degree, but, um,
1: You mean the, the act of interpreting itself? Yes. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm not a spoken language interpreter, so uh, I can't speak to what they go through, except that I do understand that changing language and culturally mediating on the fly is, excuse me, incredibly stressful for sign language interpreters. Then you have the physical element. Hmm. So you're actually communicating through your body through several nuances, how you raise your eyebrow, how, where your gaze is, how you turn your body. So all of those things you're thinking about, and you have to hear the message you have to interpret it in your head, and then you have to put it out physically and and you know and audibly. If someone is signing, and then you become their voice, right? So, it yes, it's stressful. Is it? Does it ever become easier? Certainly with experience, um, but it's it's always difficult because you are someone's voice, and especially sure. in medical, legal, those type of situations, it's life or death.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I guess the um, for any of those higher end trades or industries, they have their own type of vocabulary for those things. You know what I mean? It's like a whole nother language, if you will, for specialized fields.
1: Right. And, and I do have interpreters that I use for education. I have interpreters that I use for mental health that have that background. Um, interpreters that are used for platform. So it might be theater, it might be graduation, what we call platform interpreting. Um, so there is different training and different knowledge, depending on, you know, where, you know, where you're going to be interpreting.
0: Sure. Um, how's that, how's that coffee over there? I'll give you a I little, little, little break. To... <laughs> are you, are you a big coffee fan? I am. Is that your, is that your drink of choice? If you have to have to pick one,
1: that is my drink of choice. Somebody asked me once and there was a, a cute, um, a, a little picture on a Facebook and they and they put up and it says coffee it says water to coffee to wine and then it goes around in a circle. <laughs> and I was talking to my girlfriend about it, and I said I would give up the wine in the water but I'm not giving up my coffee
0: <laughs> where did Where did that start for you I, I I want to kind of push on this beverage part of the episode a little bit here how did how did you when was your first love of coffee when when, when did that materialize for you?
1: so my dad's family, um, I'm not, I've, I know that he was in France for a long time. So, you know, French narrative, dur- um, where was always coffee drinking in my house mm. when I was growing up. And I can remember that, um, and just wanting to be like my dad. I just hmm. adored my dad. And I'm like, I want to sit with my dad and drink coffee. So my mom gave me this little cup and she poured like, you know, nine tenths milk and probably six teaspoons of sugar and a little bit of coffee. And I just thought that was, that was great. <laughs> you know, I had my, my coffee with my dad. Um, I think when you are when you're working a lot of jobs like I did, when I, mm. you know, when I was then in and up and out of the house, I wasn't drinking coffee a lot when I lived at home. But when I was on my own, a lot of times I worked two, three jobs. And when you've got to stay up 18 hours, and right, work, you drink
0: Coffee's a little, coffee a little helpful. Yeah. The, um, was it, I mean, I guess you were kind of, weaned onto it easily with, with all the milk and, and the sugar <laughs> from, the, from the get-go. I drink it black now. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You've, you, you, you fully matured in your, in your coffee drinking. I, I also enjoy it black. I, I never, I'm not a huge coffee drinker. I do really enjoy it, but my whole thing was I never wanted to be like dependent on it. You know what I mean? I think in college was when it started where there were so many people who had probably never drinking coffee before in their lives. And then they they go like two months later and they, they can't stop or they, you know what I mean? And it's one of those situations where I was like, oh, wow, they're really struggling when they don't have it. And I didn't want to put myself in that situation. So I do enjoy it, but it's not something that I do every day, if that makes sense.
1: I have to tell you, I drink it all day long. I, I, I admit it, um, but I do know there are health benefits to it. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I do know that they actually, at one point I talked to um, a brain surgeon actually is because of something my dad was going through, but they put wafers, caffeine wafers, and they insert it into brain tissue and it, to kill the cancer cells. Really? And that was something new maybe 10 years ago that they were doing. Um, I've since talked to oncologists that will say that if you drink a lot of coffee, you probably will never get stomach cancer. I don't know if these things are true, but I'll take anything that says it's healthy. So I don't feel so bad about drinking coffee. Yeah, s-
0: strengthen your argument as much as you can.
1: And not putting anything in it and drinking it black. I don't feel guilty about, there's no calories. Right.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I, um, for you, is it, is it just about like the taste and the aroma and just having it there? Or is it more like when you wake up in the morning, is it about the process of making it and having it and, um, just kind of sitting for a second?
1: I think it's habit. It's the smell of, you know, the first thing I do in the morning before, you know, i before I even open the shades in the window or anything is I make a pot of coffee. So as I'm getting ready for work, you're smelling it in the background. Mm. It's, it doesn't anymore. It's not a stimulus to keep me awake because I can drink coffee at 11 o'clock at night and go to sleep. Right. It just doesn't. It's not. Your tolerance is so high now. It's a habit like anything else in life.
0: So, so speaking of that's the first thing you do in the morning. How, how do you as business owner structure your day? So I'm guessing you, you you start with your coffee in the morning, and then what does what the rest of the day look like for you?
1: So um, as far as work goes,
0: it's as far as everything goes because I want to I want to know how because I think that's a big a big thing as a business owner is you have other parts of your life that aren't your your business too. necessarily, <laughs> but like you have to either try to carve out time for well being stuff for yeah. some type of leisure. So how do you how do you try to manage that?
1: Um, I'm a bit of a goal person. I'm very goal oriented. So in order for me to get the healthy part of my life, I have to always have a goal. So right now I'm training cross training for a half marathon Whoa. to be my first, my youngest son runs marathons, ultra marathons. He's crazy runner, but he's been very um, instrumental in getting me running since I moved to Philadelphia, because one thing I learned about Philadelphia when I moved here five years ago is that you have to be a runner. And you have to have a dog living in old city I had a dog that lasted seven months. The dog's now living with someone else, but I'm still running. So, um, so I really have to work that into my schedule. So I have a trainer. I work with two days a week for strength training. Um, that's worked in first thing in the morning before I ever hit my office. Um, on Wednesdays today, when I'm here at the union league, I, go to the business leadership forum. And then I do Pilates for an hour. Very nice. And then on Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, I run. And um, I like to run at night. So Tuesday, Thursdays, I run at night if I can after work. And then Saturdays, I just get my long run in first thing in the morning. So the rest of the day, I can eat and drink whatever I want.
0: Do you find that that's beneficial for your, I guess, your mental state as a business owner? I mean, I'm sure that you have times where, you know, you're going to have Tons of issues swirling in your head, whether that has to do with the day to day operation, payroll, accounting, your employees, keeping jobs on track. Um, does that help you kind of get some clarity?
1: It, it, I don't know if it if it helps with the clarity as much as it helps with the escape. Hmm. So I just blast music as loud as I can. I probably have ruined my hearing at this point, and it, it just helps me get away from. I don't think about business at all when I'm running or when I'm at the gym, I am just constantly. That's good.
0: I mean, I think that's a a good point. That's your point about escape. Like that's kind of the part of the purpose. Like I was talking to someone the other day about running. It's like, I don't run a a ton, but when I do run and your only focus is on how do I survive the next minute? (laughs) You know what I mean? It's, it's, um, It's very nice. Or even when you're you, you really push yourself and you're gasping for air when you're thinking about, I need to breathe. Some of the business problems kind of leave your mind a little bit more.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it's important. I don't sleep. I'm, I'm terrible insomnia.
0: Mm.
1: Um, the, the exercising and stuff, especially running at night helps with that. But that's when my head doesn't, my mind doesn't shut off about business mm. or family or personal or whatever it is. That's when it's going round and round in your head.
0: Right. Why do you think that is? Like in general, because I've heard other, other uh, business owners say that too about um, it's, it's one of those things where it's, yes, you can try to separate it as much as possible. Like, okay, business time, but inevitably if you're the business owner, it's, it's going to be there to some degree.
1: I think it's there because we're crushed by the responsibility. Hmm. Um, I had a huge five-year party when my business hit the five-year mark. And I invited everybody that worked for me at the time, which was a lot less than work for me now. We were pretty regional. And so it was easy for me to get all the interpreters together. Now I could never do that because we're too widespread, but I remember standing on the platform and looking out at my staff, their families, my interpreters, their families and thinking, oh my God, you are responsible for every one of these people being able to pay their mortgage and their car payment and put food in front of their kids That was a huge crushing moment for me. And I never forgot that. Like it still gives me chills to think of that responsibility. So every business owner is thinking about that all the time. COVID was crushing for people. And um, I was actually told yesterday that 47% of small business owners are now looking for an out. And this person asked me, why do you think that is? And I said, COVID crushed us. I was worried about every one of my interpreters. I have a single mom over there. Is she going to be able to feed her kids? Because they weren't. They're at ten ninety nine. They're not getting unemployment. Right. And I worried about am I going to be able to keep my staff full time? Uh, you know, they you live a lifestyle that you're accustomed to, and do I have to cut their hours? And what's that going to look like? Um, I think that's what keeps us awake. It's it's not so much the logistics of a contract or hiring a new person it's the responsibility of the people that work for us
0: it's more that the, the macro picture if you mm-hmm. will of so let's talk about your your business and your vision going forward um and how that vision has changed over the years so i'm guessing you kind of came in with um, an initial thought of how you wanted to do the business you didn't have spoken language at first that kind of became integrated later on. What is the vision now for you um, and Empire go, going forward?
1: My vision is to, which is, it's a twofold, to keep the quality and what we're known for um, and the high skill and professionalism and customer service that people are used to while moving into the territory, which we have had to because of COVID of doing things virtual, of um not being an on-site interpreter interpreting service as much as we were before and how technology is moving us into different directions. Hmm. So it's, it's easy to sit in my chair and fight it and pound my fist and say, this is the best way for the consumer. I want somebody on site for every single job. It's not reality. Right. And so what's the best way to service our customers, meaning, not just the customer that's hiring us, but the customer, which we call the consumer, the person that needs that interpreter on site because they have limited English proficiency or they're deaf um, and marrying those two things together and still taking you know, the business forward in a way that's um, sustainable.
0: Yeah. The technology is something I wanted to ask about because it seems like we see all of these New innovations with like Google Translate and things like that. How does that? How does how does that impact your business? I'm guessing there's certain technologies like virtual communication tools like Zoom that can actually enhance certain parts by giving us a medium to work through to people in 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 more parts of the country or parts of the world. But at the same time, I, I have to imagine though that these tools really aren't a competitor of yours because even In an interpreting situation, again, this is just speaking from from a distance here, there's lots more to communication than just the single words that are being said. There's more, the intonation behind the words and all that. So maybe speak to just technology that is being used in your industry, and then um, I guess the separation there of what people perceive as a Google Translate versus, you know, there's a lot more meaning to it than just comes across in, in the raw words?
1: Sure. So um, the free software that you can get to translate. um, I think you saw in my presentation that I did some of the real faux pas on that.
0: Yes. Uh, (laughs) It's always good for a good laugh.
1: It was good for a good laugh. Um, You know, the most famous, I think, being the Got Milk campaign, which was plastered on billboards that said, are you lactating in Mexico? (laughs) So those are funny stories, but, um, but they can be life-threatening stories. If someone relies on that, for example, from a medical, um, sure translation, I did, I don't, I I think the place for those type of things might be in just, you know, conversation one-to-one trying to communicate with somebody on a one-to-one basis. I can understand that. Um, It gets better and better, you know, I'm not going to lie about that. They certainly do get better, but they don't take into consideration cultural nuances, uh, what we call cultural mediation Mm. and the respect that we have to have from one culture to to the other. It it certainly also takes away the human part of our interpreting or translation. Um, As far as things like Zoom and WebEx and GoToMeeting and those platforms, They've actually, the, the industry there is actually recognized that interpreters are being used for those situations and have um, adjusted to that. So you can uh, pin interpreters on like a Zoom call hmm. so that a deaf consumer can actually pin an interpreter next to the speaker and can see the speaker's you know mouth and w- what's the interpreter right next to them, which is great. Um, and actually even for team interpreting, which we do for those calls. So one interpreter can be on and the other interpreter can be off. So those platforms for the most part, and I think Zoom really has done a great job um, at doing this. It has been working well. It's not, not always preferred, but certainly with all the Zoom calls that are happening and all the virtual work we are doing every single day, what it has done for the business is opened up our ability to serve customers in other parts of the country and the world. Hmm. People are hiring us um, from California or Wisconsin, or just thinking of a few that have just signed on with us. And we're working with them every day using those, those platforms.
0: Yeah, that's it's incredible what, especially for, for you guys, it doesn't really matter necessarily where you're at. And there's people all over the world who could use these services. Um, so from a, a scaling perspective, it works greatly in your favor, as far as having some of these tools available, um, to to work with, um, if you could maybe go into a few more of those, uh, translations that you mentioned, I think these are always entertaining.
1: Um, Kentucky Fried Chicken had one that, and I can't, and I'm not going to remember every one of the different countries that these examples come from, Right, but, um, Finger looking good turned into eat your fingers off. <laughs> um, so that was one. Um, there was another one in an international airport, which was supposed to say, you know, please don't eat on the carpet, which came out, please eat the carpet. Um, just some really, really silly ones. Um, one, one, oh gosh stay off the grass, I think came as eat the grass. It, just silly examples. So
0: again, with the, the Obama situation, how does, especially for large corporations, how does this stuff make it past? I mean, if there was a translation thing that had to get done for business I was running, I was like, I mean, I'm translating it to the other language, translating it back, making sure it's, you know what I mean? It's It's rock solid before I'm launching a huge multi-million dollar ad campaign with this, um, as the, as the, um, the show for it. So how does that work? what is it just something that's like, just like shocked off as like a, a second, you know, second thought or what, what is that?
1: I think, I think it's just a lack of education and people don't under, they trust too much that you hmm. push a button and something's going to be, you know, a, effectively and accurately translated and like you said it's a lot of that word for word hmm. concept that people have. Um, I used to teach sign language at a local college and, you know, one of the biggest misconceptions is that students walked in the world, their room thinking that for every English word there's a sign. So all they have to do is learn that sign for that English word mm-hmm. and the grammar and syntax is completely different. Right. Um, so. I, I think, you know, for customers, what I tell them is that, you know, maybe you don't want to use us, but here's what to look for. You know, first and foremost, look for a, a company that has a reputation of excellence that, you know, ask for, you know, how do you vet your interpreters? Are they nationally certified? Are they just someone who's bilingual? Or do they actually have the education behind them? Are they vetted? Um, for translation projects, one person is not just the um, beginning and end of a translation project. There are other, you know, uh, there are project managers, there are other people doing oversight and looking at the translation. So it's not just one set of eyes on a translation project, it's several set of eyes, Hmm. which is very different than when you push a button (laughs) <laughs> sure, and if if anyone wants to try it, I mean, all you have to do is go online, and you can push the button, Google Translate, and you can see how silly things will come up. Or go to Facebook, and underneath, and, and we'll say, "Do you want this translated?" And it, and it's you can you can just see how poorly it works.
0: I, I've done simple ones before where it was like English to like Russian or something, and then I just go back to English, and it's like not the same thing I put in. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's Completely different. Of mm-hmm. like, how does this how does this work? Um, how about weird cases? So you mentioned that you'll have people who, are they just bilingual? Are they just, like, they just speak two languages, but do they not have have like the, the formal vocabulary necessary for a certain job, but I have to imagine there's other situations where you might have to know like the slang of a certain language to understand what someone's saying. Is that something you come across or is it more formal type corporate translation projects that you guys work on?
1: Um, It can actually be anything from a chemistry class to an MBA student to a business meeting um, to a foreign dignitary at the UN. And certainly you have to have that knowledge and background. Um, But we can get very caught off guard. Um, I had a very interesting situation where I sent two interpreters to do um, uh, a platform assignment, which they were on a platform and they were, there was some music there and say, so for like a commencement, for example, and all of a sudden in the middle of the music, which they had ahead had a time and were preparing for, somebody came up and they were doing scat. Mm-hmm. So you know what scat is, <laughs> yeah. and the interpreter was like, you know, a deer in headlights at, for a moment, and then just kind of went with it, you know, the best, the best that she could. But there's um, uh, performers. We do a lot of work with Syracuse University, for example, and they're very good about making everything accessible. And sometimes the students will bring on a rapper or they'll bring on <laughs> a comedian, which um, that must be really hard. Comedy, comedy must comedy be unbelievably un- difficult.
0: Like, how, yeah, because I, I, I would imagine because even in comedy, if you have someone who speaks the same language very well. Few, two people who are native speakers, and like your timing is off, it doesn't come across. So, I imagine if you're adding in not only timing, but a, a language barrier as well, and then all the syntax, grammar, all that stuff too, I mean, it must be incredibly difficult.
1: It is, and, and you don't get a script for comedians. Oh, they, they're just going of off, the, off the cuff. And the worst part about it is that they often love to pull the sign language interpreter into their act. <laughs> so, you know, they will say words and then just look at the interpreter like okay so how are you going to sign that
0: um which they, they get paid extra for those jobs <laughs> they should
1: <laughs> they definitely should
0: what, what is the i'm guessing there is staple languages that you come across very often are there other ones that you've come across that are like way out there like whoa we've never encountered this before we have to kind of find somebody to pull in to assist with this job like if you had to kind of break it down, where are the majority of the, the translations or the interpretations needed? Is it, uh, maybe by either language or, you know, uh, industry sector, if you will.
1: So industry sector, you know, definitely medical and education hmm. are, are the biz- biggest um, I would say business would be a third in, in, in that we do very little legal, um, And, and not a ton of platform, there's so much prep in that, that we actually have been steering away from that, um, a little bit. Um, we have not taken on new legal, uh, customers because there are, there's such specialized training that you need for that. We've learned over the years that to do what we do best and let our competitors do what they do best. Mm. And so... There are some things that, that we don't, as far as actual languages, it depends so much on what part of the country, what part of the state, you know, we're primarily New York state. That's where we started, excuse me. And so, um, there's certainly as people are being moved into the area and there are several refugees and, um, immigrants that are moving into different areas, our language needs change. So right now we are in in dire need in upstate New York of of Farsi interpreters, and um, I know for just as an example. So it it does change. It changes as the population changes, and it changes as far as where you are geographically. And also remember, for sign language, it's not universal. So Hmm. there's American sign language, German sign language, Italian sign language. Spanish sign language. I think that's
0: a big misconception is that that sign language just works for everybody because it's not verbal. Right. Um, To get back to the business side of things, as you think back on your vision initially and how that's transformed and going forward now, are there certain points where you can pinpoint and say, that was a point where I took this opportunity and was really able to leverage that into something else? In my mind. You know the 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 management course um, offered to you when you were over at uh, at Porsche that seemed to be a very pivotal moment that I can take advantage of this. I can really leverage this to kind of get to that next level. In the interpreting business, where were those points for you when you were like, "Here's a good opportunity." It seems like the the, um, the spoken language was a big opportunity that you really had the wherewithal to say, "Yes, let's let's run with this." What other points of leverage or opportunities have you come across and really? um, been able to take advantage of.
1: So I can absolutely think of those, um, about three years in, I was called and I'll never forget it because it was Memorial day weekend. I was called on a Friday afternoon by an interpreter who works for a New York state department of ed. And she said, I hope you're bidding on the upcoming contract Hmm. for sign language interpreters. And basically it was for college students and for some on the job training. And I was like, no, um, she goes, you haven't responded to the RFP. And I'm like, what's an RFP. <laughs> I'll be totally honest. I had no idea what I was doing. And she said, well, we've used your company when the agency that has the contract has not been able to provide interpreters out of contract, which I knew it's due on Monday. And I called my attorney and my CPA and I, locked myself in my office for, it was actually a three day weekend for three days wow. and wrote this and learned how to write an RFP with their help. And we were awarded that contract wow. in a certain geographic area in New York state. And then we ended up servicing almost the entire state. Um, and we awarded more and more geographic areas over the next several years. That became a huge part of the business. Um, Ironically, last year I decided to not pursue those anymore because of some changes that were made and it was not beneficial to the company or the interpreters. So that was a very difficult decision, but it, got, it really propelled us into a whole new level. Um, the other time that I can um, re- think about is that um, at one point in time, we were getting calls from emergency rooms and getting calls from hospitals in the beginning and a lot of these places didn't have contracts with us. They just needed an interpreter and they were just finding us online. Sure. So we, I had a brainstorm. Um, my CFO and I, but then was my like receptionist, now my CFO. Uh, we made packets for emergency rooms. We laminated cards and said, if you need an, an interpreter, a sign language interpreter, these languages that we provided, call this number. And then we made a language wheel, which is basically we punch hold the little strips of paper and we put, I need an interpreter in Italian and it would be in English on one side and Italian on the other. So we had all these languages, we punch hold them together, we put all this information with our, back then we had (sighs) brochures, now you don't use brochures, business cards, and um, actually my youngest son, we gave him the job to put, he put on a business suit, he was right out of college, <laughs> he got in his old ratty Jeep and he drove to every emergency room in New York state that we I mean, we sent him day after day, week after week and he just dropped him off in the emergency room and said, I'm here to drop this off for you. And we started getting calls like crazy from hospital emergency rooms, which then later on developed into contracts with um, these
0: hospitals. So. That, that's so fascinating. Like even the, it's one of those things where you have this idea. It's like, whoa, this could work. But like in the back of your mind, you're like, I don't know if this might work. This maybe will work. I don't know. And sometimes when you're doing that, you're like, am I wasting my time here? What am I doing? But then looking back, it was like an ingenious move to say, here's this wheel. It's a very easy way for people to see how they can, have someone come in and translate for them. But you know what I mean? Am I, am I off here? Or does that that make sense to you? Like at, at, at that time, you're like, I, we know this is going to work or we're just kind of shooting in the dark here. And I think it'll work, but I'm not quite sure.
1: I think what worked was that all of a sudden the person sitting behind the desk when presented with someone they couldn't communicate with had it an option. They had somebody to call. They could call us and say, okay, we can get an interpreter here and 45 minutes or whatever. Um, so, and, and that definitely was, and it's so funny because my youngest son was involved in that. And then fast forward later, my oldest son was working for me and he said, you know, we really should do something about social media, which it wasn't even thinking about Hmm. and started developing social media platforms and, you know, getting the word out there. So, you know, it, it, It's one of those times when, you know, Stacy and I together, we came up with that kind of bootstrapping, you know, we're going to go out and knock on doors and hand out. But I think that the um, other pivotal moments for the business, not so much in acquiring customers, but just in moving the business forward, were those ideas that people came up with and said, you know, we need to do X,
0: Y, or Z. Absolutely. And And, and things change, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Things things change over time, like you say, with, with that one contract. It was, it was a very good boost for you in those early years, but it comes to a point as the business evolves where uh, we could keep this, but it's honestly doesn't fit what we're, what we're doing anymore. Um, so maybe just talk for a second on how that process, how you think about that process. Like I think some people get into a rut sometimes where, oh, we've had this client for a long, long time and we have to service them forever <laughs> as opposed to there being a, a different direction to go. And that, that can be tough because you either have ties with them, you don't necessarily want to stop, but at the same time you realize, okay, it's kind of undercutting some portions of the business here that we, you know, it might, it might be better served not doing that anymore, but just talk about that for a second.
1: Yeah. That was pretty gut-wrenching. I can imagine. To be honest. Um,
0: Cause you were had a tons of relationships. I can imagine. Yeah, with-
1: 15 years we served those contracts and we had relationships with the people, um, people in Albany. I had very close relationships with, the staff, of we knew how to serve that contract and we knew we were the best at it. And we were even told once in a meeting in Albany that they said, you know, Empire is the gold standard that we want every other agency to um, live up to. So we knew we were doing it right and we were doing a good job. But because of how things had changed in the industry, because of the limitations that they were putting on this particular contract, Um, It really wasn't a response to, uh, you know, um, like an RFP. It was more a job offer because it was, this is what we will pay. This is, you know, uh, we will, you know, the parameters. And if anyone's worked with the state or federal government, you know that you wait for your money. Sure. So we had to also, you know, factor in that. I was actually able to run my business with one less full-time staff person because of the paperwork involved in that contract. Jeez. So um, it was a very tough decision. My staff was solidly behind me. They, they were ready, the stress of it. I mean, it was it's a very stressful contract for several different reasons. Um, it had changed over the years, unfortunately, not to the betterment and said, is this a viable customer? But we had, we had signed on hundreds of customers and interpreters and were known in the field because of these, this contract, because we were all over the state. So people would see us, our business cards were out there, interpreters were out there. So that served a huge purpose. But it's very hard to cut off a customer base. It's very scary. The one thing that it did for us though, that it, it took a customer that was over 30% of our business. It allows us, allowed us to focus on acquiring new customers. And mm-hmm. now I have I have no my customer base is so diverse now that there's now one customer that's more than. 10% of my business, my revenue,
0: which is actually from a strategic standpoint, probably a better position to be in
1: much better. You don't want all of your revenue position. coming
0: from, from one client mm-hmm. because in, inevitably when the hard times do come, as we know they do, that could be a drastic hit to the business. Right. Um, so that's actually, that's actually awesome. I mean, if you're less than, you know, nine ten 10% for every customer and you can now have the the freedom to kind of pull in new people as they come along. I mean, that that's, that's a really a winning recipe, I think
1: yeah, so much of the staff was servicing the one customer um, that it, it just, you know, and because of the fact that we, we feel very obligated ethically and professionally to pay our interpreters a fair rate and to pay them travel and to pay them minimums. We were still doing it out of pocket when we weren't able to bill for some of those things. Right. And so it is just, you know, I would always say to myself, what would you be willing to do when you were a freelance interpreter? Would you get up, get dressed and put on a business suit to go somewhere where you were only going to get an hour pay? That was your minimum. And the answer was no. So if I'm not willing to do that, I'm not asking my interpreters
0: to do it. Sure. Absolutely. Um, So I want to do what we call the quick question round real quick. It's just really to It's a broad variety of topics. just want to get your your initial thoughts. Um, So the first question is, what is the coolest thing that you've seen recently? It can be either in the interpreting business or in in anything as far as you're concerned, but uh, the the coolest thing that you've seen.
1: Wow. The coolest thing I've seen. um, I have to say that it was probably my nine-year-old grandson who lives in Charlotte, who is into coding, Hmm. who we were zooming. And he showed me a browser that he created and coded. And I thought that is the coolest thing. And he's, he's, he's 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 nine, nine. he's nine years old. And he has to dumb it down so that I know what he's talking about. But I thought that was, that was, it's the coolest thing I've seen recently.
0: Yeah. It's it's pretty cool seeing, um, I mean, coding seems to be all all the rage these days as far as, you know, actually, you know, learning computer language, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, But it's, uh, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, because we've been on, at least I've been on the receiving end, meaning I've got to use all these tools, but as far as the creating side, the way technology is moving, it seems more and more people are moving into the space and want to be creators and which just further propels the technological narrative of things moving forward, but uh, that's pretty amazing. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. It solidified in me, in my mind to, you know, where we have to move the business. Gotcha. If a nine-year-old's coding like this, this is the future and you can't, you can't sit still. It's kind of like when I took my business virtual eight years ago, I wanted a receptionist that bought me coffee and I wanted to walk in and sit in my beautiful lobby. Sure, It's like, okay, well, that's a whole lot of ego, but this is not the real world and this is where we need to go.
0: So for a tangent real quick, is, is that something that you guys still have in place or you guys, what percentage are you virtual now versus, um, in the office, let's say.
1: Oh, we're, we've been virtual for eight years. Oh, so hundred percent virtual 100%, wow. for a long time.
0: Wow. Yeah. I think it's probably served you well, especially over the past couple of years.
1: And we were very lucky that we were virtual and didn't have a learning curve during COVID and, and didn't have the brick and mortar overhead.
0: Sure. Sure. Um, what is a tool um, that you couldn't live without, whether that's like a a calendar or a a software tool or um, what is something that you on a daily basis use that you're like, this is very, very helpful to me in my business? Basecamp. Basecamp.
1: Number one.
0: Simple enough. That, that, That keeps track of all your client communication stuff as far as, you know,
1: we also have a proprietary software system that we built about 12 years ago. We called it Overpass and we hired a company in Toronto to build it. And it, that was one of my young staff's ideas, my youngest son. And he said, we are typing papers up and doing things manually. What the heck are we doing? And so I said, well, what do we do? And he found this company and worked with them for 18 months and built it and takes everything from the time my request comes in. All the way through to when interpreters are paid and billing, so that actually integrates with Basecamp. Nice. So I don't know how I would. I mean, it, I mean, we could do it, but that's the, and those are the engines that run the business. So yeah, the, the integration of Basecamp has been phenomenal. For so us. you have,
0: you have Basecamp, you have this proprietary tool that you guys have outside and it that you've been able. Everything. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. And then you can you know bring your uh, your nine year old. uh Nephew on board it's to help board. help. With the code I think I'm and... gonna
1: have to hire him soon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, what is the most what are the most transformational changes that you're looking to make, let's say in the next 90 days, like on a pro- professional basis um, in, in your business and just the general direction of the business?
1: In 90 days?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, right now um, we're meeting and looking at different ways to service um, our customers when it comes to. Uh, platform interpreting and that's we have done and probably quadrupled if not more the number of commencements we did this year that we've Hmm. ever done wow so in the course of doing that there's so much time that staff time that it takes to pull all those pieces together or a commencement to give the interpreters what they need to, to service the customers we're looking at different ways to streamline that to make it easier for our customers and our interpreters. And um, and then to also look at how that might relate to other parts of the business. So this, uh, summer months are slow months. So this is a time that we really start looking at things. Um, my subcontractor packets, I'm changing some legal language. So I'm really involved with my accountant and, and my attorney in updating things during the summer. So those things will change.
0: So the summer is your time to work on the business instead yeah. of working. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Um, and finally, I think I know the answer to this question based on our previous conversation here, but I would guess it's probably a combination of water, wine, and coffee, but what, what is your, your favorite beverage? Coffee. Coffee. <laughs>
1: it's, it's hands down, got to be coffee.
0: Uh, well, Teresa, thank you so much for setting aside time to do this. I've, i really enjoyed the conversation. Um, and, you know, look forward to to talking more, but, um, I'm going to give you the next, you know, 30 seconds or so are yours just to, um, give any last words to the people listening and plug anything as far as your social media or anything of that sort.
1: Um, I always take the opportunity to talk about my business and thank you, Greg, for giving me the opportunity. I I really do love to talk about business in general, and I'm always available to anyone. I especially love working with young entrepreneurs, can find us online at empireinterpreting.com and we're on all the, all the social media platforms. So I I would guess if any advice to a young entrepreneur or young in whatever business you have is to never keep it yourself, to constantly be adding on staff and to give autonomy to the people that you work, you've trusted them up to hire them, let them take their ideas and run with it.
0: Sure, awesome. Thank you so much, Teresa. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Greg.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. If you are not yet a subscriber, please go and hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, and all the major platforms. And you'll get notifications whenever new episodes are posted. If you want to write to us, our email is leverageandbeverage at gmail.com. And if you follow us on Instagram, it's at leverageandbeverage. I'm Greg Sobasinski, and you've been listening to Leverage and Beverage. As always, keep pushing forward one sip at a time.